Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this Survivor Story Series episode, our guest is Kathy Picard, a childhood sexual abuse survivor and author of the book, Life with My Idiot Family, a true story of survival, courage, and justice over childhood sexual abuse. Kathy is also an advocate for Massachusetts reform in extending their criminal and civil statute of limitations for childhood sexual abuse. She's here with us today to speak about the ways in which her abuse affected her relationships, her choices, and her eventual advocacy to help other survivors. We will pay special attention to abuser tactics, signs of abuse, and have Kathy share upstander tips and how we could do more to prevent and respond to abuse. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you, Cherry, for having me on your show. Well, I'd like to thank you for writing your book, Life with My Idiot Family, A True Story of Survival, Courage, and Justice um, Over Childhood Sexual Abuse. I was very moved by it and um, really grateful that you took, you and your husband took the time to put down what I think are s- such important observations and thoughts about your very painful experience. So thank you. Thank you. It, it was definitely a healing time in writing it. You know, it took over five years to do but in writing it, it brought back a lot of triggers. But in the end, it's very um, helpful to know that people that are going to read that and get some more awareness into their lives. Mm-hmm. I hope so, too, with this episode. Let's start with the person who you thought was your father, who you learned later was a, your stepfather. How should we Correct. refer to him as during this conversation? Um, I would say to call him my stepfather. Okay. You talked about your stepfather's, what I would term grooming of you in some earlier pages of the book where you uh, referred to how he would say nice things and pay attention to you, how you were happy, confused, but happy, uh, but that didn't seem to last long. So did you feel like looking back that that was sufficient, his, even the infrequent good behavior and good treatment of you was sufficient to sort of get you to be bonded and loyal? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and just, you know, even just some of his words, you know, him constantly saying the I love you's that I wasn't getting from my mom, that meant something to me. You know, I would get to do things that my mom would say, no, I'm, you're not allowed to do that. Well, if I asked my stepfather, he would say yes and let me do those. So there was a different sense that he had towards me versus my three half-sisters growing up in the same family, whereas I would get to do things that they couldn't. But I would definitely have to pay for it later on. And he referred to you as his quote-unquote special girl. Um, did he do this in private only or also in public definitely in private okay you know calling me a special girl in private um so it was basically your secret that he had these special behaviors towards you and that you were his um favored daughter compared to your three sisters whom you didn't know at the time was your 
uh, where you were half sisters growing up, um, and so you you wanted to keep it a secret. I'm guessing um, because you enjoyed that special status. Absolutely, and Terry, just to make sure, um, I had thought that my stepfather was my real dad. So I would always call him dad and not knowing until I was 17 years old that in fact he was not my biological dad. And how did the relationship that you had with your stepfather um, evolve into him actually violating you? Can you talk briefly about was the first instance when he broke into the bathroom? That was kind of one of the main ones that I remember, you know, I was in the bath. I'd love taking baths, still do even today, but going into that safe bathroom, I would lock the door and I'll never forget ever him unlocking the door with the screwdriver and putting the screwdriver down on the sink and coming over to the bathtub. And one of the times even getting into the bathtub with me. And how old were you at that point? Around that time, I was about seven, seven years old. So nine, seven. So that level, I'm guessing that that instilled a sense of fear and anxiety in you and an, a sense of uncertainty where you never really had any sense of privacy in your own home. Never, no privacy. And after him doing that, I knew that wherever I would go, wherever I would hide, he would find me. Can you just tell our listeners from what age the physical sexual abuse started and uh, how long it lasted? So it happened when I was seven until I was 17 years old. And, you know, everything from the I love you's and the way he would talk to me all the way up to him giving me alcohol uh, to ease the pain, as was stated. And all the way up to the laundry room, being downstairs in the laundry room in my high school years and him in a compromised position behind me. And my sisters saw that and I would tell them that, no, he's just fixing my skirt because I went to a Catholic school. But, you know, I, I would just lie for him, Terry, and it just, it's not right. You know, the things that he did to me and, and I feared I feared a lot for him because there was a gun in the home. He was an auxiliary police officer. Let's talk about your sisters seeing you. You had at some point had been moved. Your room had been moved down to the basement of the home, I presume, so that he could have privacy. Yeah. Um, so in, in one way, you expressed that you enjoyed having that time and space to yourself. But on the other hand, you also made you more vulnerable and more at risk of not having any anybody be able to uh, help you. Yeah. When your sisters first saw your fa- your stepfather with you in the basement, was that before um, your mother had seen you? Th- that was before, correct. What happened after your sisters saw you? They believed you when you made the denials? Well, they had, they had questioned it. They said, you know, what is going on? And I lied for him, of course. And I stated, he's just fixing my skirt. And my stepfather said, you know, get the F upstairs. Because he was upset that we are being so-called caught. 
But by me lying for him and keeping it a secret, I guess in his mind, he was not caught at all. And I did, I did that often. I, I lied for him many, many occasions. What was going through your mind when you immediately lied to protect him? What instigated that response? Um, I, the way I felt, I felt good about it, actually. I felt like he was going to be happy because I'm lying for him. Because during those younger years, Terry, I didn't feel like what I was doing was actually wrong and so dirty as I think of it today. But I didn't think it was anything that bad. I felt as though I was being his good girl, his special girl, and I was lying for him and just doing as I was told to do. And and there was was there a sense that you would be rewarded with more positive attention as a result? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I whether it be being able to stay up late at night or being able to go over my friend's house or not being hit as hard with the belt because us four girls growing up in the family, that was our punishment. We would get hit with a leather belt. And he would quite often tell me that when I got hit, it wasn't as hard because of what I was doing. Was that true? There there was less physical corporal response to your infractions as a child than to your sisters? I think so. Yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't feel the pain wasn't as hard. I mean, I can't say what pain they got, but I do think that the pain I received was lessened, but I would have to, like I said, I would have to pay for it later with pleasing him. So besides the positive attention that you were getting, another tactic that your stepfather used to keep you complicit with his behavior is in your book you wrote, he threatened that if you if you told anybody, the quote, whole family would split up. Who would take mm-hmm. care of the dog, Poochie? Yeah. What would friends think? What would, would you want to be responsible for all of that, unquote? So yeah. that, that's you know, a very direct threat to putting the shoulder of responsibility on you for the consequences of his behavior. Very much so. And, you know, to add to that is that if I did say something, he would say, your mother and I would get divorced and it would be your fault. And back then, you know, there's so much divorce now, but back then divorce wasn't as, as common. And I did not want to say, well, my parents are divorced. So, and I didn't want to have that blame. And if I spoke up, that's what I was told what would happen is they would get divorced because of me. What year was this approximately? That was when I was about, I believe, nine, around nine years old. And just, just was that in the 80s approximately? Yes. Yeah, in the 80s. Okay. Totally different from now. And and so the stigma of divorce obviously weighed heavily on your mother as well. Yes. Because a big part of your story is detailing the degree to which she was a bystander to your abuse and yeah. Um, complicit. Yeah. You talk about how your mother defends her behavior in not being affectionate and loving because she was never taught that by her mother. Right. How did you feel about that when you were a child hearing that? Did that make sense to you? Did, were you 
accepting um, of it? I, I accepted it. Now, I think back as an adult that that is totally, that's a lame excuse, <laughs> you know, but that's the excuse she had. She had an excuse. She gave me a reason and I did accept it, but I was still hurt by it. I was still hurt by not being able to hear my mother say the words, I love you. And that's huge for a parent, mom or dad to tell their kids, I love you. It's huge, and it should be done on a daily basis. Looking back now at her own history, do you have a sense of understanding of why she wasn't able to, given her own childhood? Yes, I do, but I still think that she still could say those words. I mean, I understand what childhood she had, But I still think that even though a child goes through a bad childhood, I still think that they can be a little bit stronger if they're able to and if they want to. And and to be clear for our listeners, your mother was 16 when she gave birth to you. Correct. So she was a very young mother and didn't have a lot of guidance from her own parents about how to parent. And so... What kind of relationship did you have with your three sisters? In my younger days, in my younger days, we had we had a good relationship, especially with my younger sister, who, when the abuse started, would have open heart surgery in Boston, and that's what gave my stepfather the ability to really be able to do a lot of the grooming process when nobody else was around in the home. But so we had a good relationship in the younger years. And then as the time went on, you know, it got more distance. And especially in the adult years, you know, we're totally distant. We don't, we have no communication now whatsoever. So it was not just your mother, but also your three sisters who basically became enablers of the abuse and refused to not only accept it. Right but blamed you for speaking out about it. Yep, yep. Because that's his biological kids, don't forget. Mm-hmm. So they, I would hear the words, he's my father and I have to stick up for him. And so in, in some ways they were groomed by him to yeah. be protective. Yeah. In what ways was your, father, your stepfather emotionally or psychologically abusive towards your your sisters, um, we know that he was physically with everyone, but how was he emotionally and psychologically with them to basically get them to this point of, of such denial? I think, Terry, I think in my younger years and even to the adult years, he is, he is a bully. His, his voice, his, you know, his ability to be overpowering and think that he's above everybody, but just his his physical voice is enough to make people, you know, want to follow whatever he says to do. And that's how I was when I was younger, but not anymore. You know, he's he's just a typical a bully type. Do as I, you know, do as I tell you to do. And what do you think separated you from your sisters? What was the difference that made you such a strong proponent for telling the truth and advocating for yourself and for your sisters to have taken such a different path in their own lives with regard to how they viewed these experiences? I think that comes from support. And my biggest 
supporter who still told me not to talk about it was my Aunt Judy. My Aunt Judy was the mom that I had in my life that wasn't my mom. It was my mother's sister. And to have her support, have her guidance was huge for me. And it made me the person that I am today because, because of her. She's taught me things that my mother never did. And that is to be strong. And I think, like I said, I think having your support group and your ability to talk about what's wrong and do something about it. And that's what I did. 17 years of advocating for sexual abuse survivors to get justice, to speak up and to make themselves healthy. You know, self-help is huge. But you, and yet you were there for your sisters when you when you grew up. Yeah, and, and and so it it wasn't like they were completely bereft of support. You did so much to help them and in their own children, even. Right, right. But I that's that's the past in their eyes. That would be the past, and this is now. And and so when your mother first told you that your your stepfather was not your biological father, um, you described that as her telling you after a night when you came home late and had a fight with your boyfriend and yes. you prob- you were, had expected that you were going to be reprimanded for being late and instead yeah. she blurts out that your father um, had He's died in Vietnam him. and that your your stepfather is not your real father what what do you think was behind that timing I, I think she really had a lot of anger issues. You know, and it's sad to say, but to have to have a mom that has jealousy issues of her own daughter, and I do feel that way now, and I, I do know that that was the case because there was a, numerous occasions when she would say, I didn't have to have you, you know, I could have just gotten rid of you, and, you know, I was to blame because she got pregnant, you know, I've heard that. You know, I wasn't even born and I was already being blamed at her having me. But I think she really was upset that she had a young kid at such a young age that it it didn't let her do things that she wanted to do. And it's not my fault, you know, but I, I think I really did get blamed for that. And that's actually how I felt, too, in that moment reading about that, that there was a sense of also you say jealousy, but envy, envy that you, you had a relationship and, um, rather than sort of concentrating on that, um, she deflected and and did something that was going to be hurtful to you. I mean, growing up, you know, growing up, there was the the hair pulling and, you know, if you do this or whatever, I'm going to cut your nails. So there was different things that she did that a lot of moms don't really do to their young daughters. Well, definitely. Um, and so what what was um, your reaction when you found out that your sisters at some point in, in, in adulthood, um, that your sister's daughter, Roxy, was living with your mother and your stepfather? Oh, that was, that was huge. I, I remember that night just as though it was like yesterday, you know, I was in the hot tub and just relaxing. And that's when I realized a conversation that I had with my sister. And she said, well, you know, 
my daughter's living in that house. And I said, what house? And she said, the house where we grew up in. And all I could think about, Terry, was, is he touching her? Is he doing the things that he did to me? Is he doing them to her? And I just, I couldn't let that happen. I couldn't stand by and let that happen to her. And that's when I did. I reached out DSS and filed a 51A because, you know, I couldn't shut my mouth. I needed to, to help her. And you, 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 uh, so to our listeners, you basically contacted Child Protective Services. Right. Right. And, and the caseworker said, quote, Kathy, you need to back off. Your niece is living in a loving home, unquote. Yeah. Um, did your, did the caseworker, were they familiar with the family already? Were they friends with your, um, stepfather? I I don't know. I still wonder that myself because that was not the response that I expected to get, you know, when I had called up because I wanted to see after I filed, I wanted to know what the outcome was. I wanted to make sure that my niece was not in this home and not being touched inappropriately. And that's when I was told, like you said, Kathy, you need to back off. Your niece is living in a lovable home. And I did not expect that response. I was just so upset by that. So I had to back off. I had no, I did what I, what I could do. And looking back at your niece, Roxy, now, um, and all of the behaviors that, you know, she exhibited, what, what are your thoughts and theories around how she was treated in that home? On, in all honesty, I, I still, to this day, I still believe that she was touched. You know, to what extent, I don't know. But the red flags are there. You know, prostitution. She was a dancer. She drank. Just really, you know, a lot of different men in her life. And, you know, I wish I could have helped her. And I, I hope it didn't happen to her. But I believe it did. So, so these are symptoms that many childhood sexual abuse survivors exhibit or behaviors that they engage in as a response to their childhood sexual abuse, right? So ex- excessive, um, trying to cope with, through drugs or alcohol, and I forgot what's the term for, for oh, and, and promiscuity. Promiscu- yeah, yeah, because yeah. Yes. We, <laughs> we just had a conversation, I just had a conversation with a researcher who's who studies this. And then, you know, these are kind of, I think, Culturally, we, we think that they're myths, but it was interesting yeah. to have a conversation and actually re- realize that these are, you know, scientifically studied and typical responses to this kind of behavior. Um, so looking back at your, your sisters, did you, did you ever wonder if they had been inappropriately touched? I don't think they were. No, don't forget those were his biological children, but it doesn't matter. But I don't think that they were. I mean, I could be wrong, but I, I really, truly believe that my niece was, and they weren't. Well, your your niece was his biological, is his biological granddaughter, right? Um, but yeah, speaking of of uh, your stepfather's um, reason for abusing you, he actually, mm-hmm. when you asked him why he abused you, he said because you were such a pretty girl and not my real kid. So I right. guess that not my real kid part may not have extended uh, beyond one generation, right. uh, unfortunately. 
And I wish that that conversation, I remember calling him up and asking him, you know, why did you touch me? And that was what his reasons were. And the same, like you said, the same reasons for my niece. So, you know, did he touch her? I don't know. I want to talk about some of the ways in which the abuse showed up in your in your life physically through other symptoms. So for for you, you had trouble sleeping. Mm-hmm. You trembled when you slept. Uh, you pulled out your eyelashes and eyebrows from stress. Yeah. So there was destructive physical self destructive physical behavior. Was there anything yeah. else? I fainted a lot. Um, my eating habits weren't what they should have been. You know, I always like sweets as I do today, but <laughs> um, to eat a healthy meal that wasn't in my my menu. Um, I think and trust was a huge a, tr- a huge issue for me. Trust, uh, as far as having relationships, and to even to this day, to be safe, and I would still lock the cellar door. And I did that as a kid growing up, making sure that the door was locked. And and I still do that. That's one of the habits that I still carry on. You know, lucky luckily that I don't have to worry about the trust as far as in men, because I've solved that with marrying my husband. And what but about those were the biggest ones. The PTSD, you know, having that. I do a lot of people think that PTSD just comes from our veterans and I, I do thank our veterans for their service. My my dad was in the army, my biological dad. But PTSD can be found in other people as well as those that did not serve. And and PTSD for, for listeners um, can show up in an emotionally and a psychologically abusive relationship, even without physical abuse. There are, that's a common response as well. And then you also talk about other signs of abuse is as an adult, you have fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. uh, pain, fatigue. So th- these are all also trauma responses as as well, but these are very common uh, amongst women and yep. amongst survivors. Do you have any suggestions of how, as a child, you could have you, you any kind of advice you can give uh, people who are dealing with the chronic stress of being in an abusive situation? How you how they might mitigate some of the long-term effects of their abuse, um, if it's even possible? The, the biggest one, Terry, and this, this is from when you first find out about the abuse or realize about the abuse, that it's bad from a young child, talk about it. Talk about it. Tell you did nothing wrong. It's not your fault. But get that help that you need. That's the biggest thing that that I did was to tell, go to a support group, go to a counselor, if the, especially if the abuse is happening in the home, which most likely it is, 93% of it is by someone that you know, tell somebody outside what's happening so that it can stop. And the sooner it stops is when the healing process can begin. And you talk about your own therapy um, where you tried in, 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 there was some intermittent therapy, but at some point you wrote that you stopped when your therapist 
pointed out that you might have PTSD. Yeah. Do you remember that? Is that? Is, is... I remember. I remember that the the biggest one that I remember with the counselor is one counselor that I went to, and I felt as though I was bothering her. She kept on looking at the clock, and finally, the words that came out of her mouth was very alarming. She said, "Kathy, you need to go on with your life and forget about this." And I left her office that night knowing that I was never going to return. You don't tell somebody to forget about it because they're never going to forget about it. They may it may lessen, but for a counselor to tell me that I needed to forget about it, it was just really really bad advice. It sounds like it's also unethical advice. Absolutely. And the fact that you had that ex- horrible experience. Uh, points to the importance of therapists who are trained and understand the dynamics of domestic violence and child abuse and child sexual abuse and can and can, and can provide the right supportive environment as well as use the right terminology and yeah. approaches to help a survivor um, yeah. that 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 was was that the same therapist who diagnosed you with PTSD Yes. So she didn't even provide trauma-informed training. Uh, trauma, she didn't even provide a trauma-informed response. Right, right. Have you, and, ha- and, you know, I tell, I tell a lot of counselors, police officers, um, people of authority that when talking to somebody about abuse, any kind of abuse, your eye contact and your tone of voice is extremely important to the person that you're talking to. Is that something that surprises them? I mean, to Sometimes. me, it sounds like common sense, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's surprising that you even have to, unfortunate that you even have to say that. And how, how so what are, what are their responses? Some of them, they, they just say that we didn't realize that. You know, you should realize it because, like you mentioned, Terry, it's very common. But, you know, people of authority, if you've got this young child or teenager and they're telling you for the first time that something happened to me, you may say, well, we'll talk about it later. I mean, they just don't realize that that person, it took them a lot of courage to speak out. You need to take the time right then and now to talk to them and understand them. Thank them for tell, for sharing their story. What do they do when they're not looking at someone in the eye? They're not paying attention. So they're, they're not paying attention to that person sharing something that really needs to be talked about. You so know, they're multitasking your, or on their phone or yeah, talking yeah. to someone else? Yeah, they're not paying attention. And that person sharing their story, they can see that. You know, a lot of people, especially survivors, are very visual. And so speaking of ways in which support can be given to survivors, there were so many bystanders in your life who mm-hmm. were aware of the abuse and looked the other way. Um, right. One of them was your stepfather's mom, Noni, who mm-hmm. I guess she even before the abuse, she was cold and distant. And later on, you learned it was because she, she knew that you weren't her biological granddaughter. 
Right. You you wrote that you never received birthday or Christmas presents or any acknowledgement of any kind, like physical, that, that you were even present. No. I just, even, you know, even if you were never abused by your stepfather, that kind of behavior is abusive in itself. Right. And right. I wonder what other people, whether other people noticed. Did your mother notice? Oh, yes. Yes, they did. They absolutely, my mother being one of them, and she would in turn go and buy Christmas presents and say, this is from Nani. You know, she didn't have time to get it for you or she forgot. So they would make up excuses. And of course, being a young child, I, I, you know, I thought that was the truth. I'm actually surprised that your mom did that. That seems like one of the few loving acts that she did as a mom. Yeah, exactly. Now thinking back, yes, you're right. And and you also talked about your biological father. Can you tell us when you found out about your biological father, when you reached out to him, uh, how old were you then? And what was that conversation like when you first told him about your stepfather's abuse? So I met my biological dad when I was 28 years old. Going back to that conversation with my mother and stepfather, saying that they didn't want to have me, and that's when I found out he was my stepfather, I asked my mother, I said, well, who is my real father? And she said, you'll never meet him. He died in Vietnam because, as I mentioned, he served in the Army, which is totally untrue. So going forward, I didn't meet my my real dad until I was 28 years old. So this year marks that I've known my real dad more than not knowing him as a young girl growing up. And we see each other. We talk on the phone every day. It brings tears to my eyes. But he's he's a wonderful, wonderful man. And <clears throat> I'm glad that he's in my life. And, you know, he's a huge support person in my life now. And I'm glad that I did finally meet him and... Oh, I could could just go on and on about him so much that I did include a whole chapter in my book about my dad. When you first told him about your stepfather, you remarked that your biological father didn't give you a response. There was nothing, I guess, dramatic that he expressed physically or verbally or in tone to um, acknowledge the weight of what you had gone through. And then you wrote... Um, you wanted to cut him some slack for not knowing how to respond because most people don't know what to do or say. And did you ever have a conversation with him since then about your response to his response? We never really did, but I think, I think of that often and I think he doesn't really want to talk about it. And I think he may take a little bit of the, the blame for not being in my life maybe that's what i think so i know that he he does feel sorry that it happened to me and he doesn't really have to word it now because of the connection that we have now and it's okay i'm okay with that and i know he feels sorry for what happened to me as a young girl and i can't take it back but he is the dad to me today that that i really appreciate and you know, that I'm, that I'm thankful for. So in other words, 
your sense is that there's a underlying guilt that I guess stupefied him from being able to respond in, in any appropriate way because there is really nothing one can do or say to to rectify the harm that's been had. Yes, yeah, I truly believe that. But, you know, getting back to that st- statement, most people don't know what to do or say. Your Aunt Judy had a different response mm-hmm. when you confided in her. So I want you to talk about her response and then maybe share with us how you think most people, if they were to be confided this kind of information, could respond to a, a victim or survivor who's disclosing for the first time. So my Aunt Judy, when I told her, also I actually told her at the age of 28 as well, and she didn't want me to talk about it anymore. She just said, Kathy, if you want to talk about it, you can talk about it with me. And the reasoning for her not wanting to do anything or make any headwave is because she was very threatened by him. And he was, you know, he threatened a lot of people. And there was a gun in the home. He was an auxiliary police officer. So a lot of people were threatened by him. And I understood that by Judy, but I knew that she understood what I had gone through because she knew it was going on as well. But there was nothing that she could actually do. But I don't know. Now I think about it. She she probably could have done something. But it's okay now well, what, for me. Well, if you were disclosed this information, how would you respond to a child sharing the same thing? Oh, I would definitely do something. Because being in, in that position, I mean, I would definitely go to authorities and report it. I would definitely go and report it and to stop that abuse from happening. So you would go to the police? Yep. Do these authorities include Child Protective Services? Um, I think I would go to the police first. They, they of course, would go to Child Protective Services. But I would, I would, personally, I would start with the police department or and even make a call to the DA's office because I wouldn't want it to slip through the cracks. I wouldn't want to just, so I think I would tell three, four people, you know, the more you tell probably the better, you know, so that the possibility of it just stopping, there wouldn't be that chance. How would you be supportive of the child who's disclosing with you? How would you be available if let's say the child is cut off from you after disclo- after your reporting? Oh, I, how would I, how would I feel? Would you be able to make yourself available in some way or communicate that you would be there? I would if I could, you know, there would be, sometimes there are people, especially if they're the offenders, they would put up a roadblock, you know, they would file restraining orders and keep me away. And I would be as, as available as, as I could be to this child for disclosing. Absolutely. 110%. And, and one of the, another bystander in your life that you talk about, which was in an anecdote where you describe how your mother actually had confirmation of your abuse because your mother went to a neighbor to try to tell mm-hmm. the neighbor and, and the attorney, um, even contacted an attorney and the attorney said he couldn't do anything because both you and your father denied it. And so you had asked the question in that anecdote, why didn't the neighbor call Child Protective Services? Did right. you ever find out anything about which neighbor it was? Oh, I, I know exactly what neighbor it was. And, you know, I, of course, contacted her later on in, in, 
in life most recently. And, you know, I had worked with this neighbor and I just still, it fathoms me. I can't believe that here I worked with this woman and she knew what I was going through and still chose not to say anything or do anything, but knowing what my night would consist of. So you did confront her in, as an adult and confirm that she yes. didn't do anything. Yep. Did she Absolutely. explain why? What was her no. response? No, no response. Did she Just seem remorseful? That, um, I, I didn't sense that. I didn't get that sense, you know, her saying, you know, I'm sorry, I should have told. I didn't get those words. So, no. I mean, I just know for a fact that she knows what was happening to me. And as you mentioned, did not do anything about it. So when you found out that your mother had actually tr tried to get help for you and she was shut down, did how did that make you feel? That, that really kind of made me feel good, actually, because I did not know that she reached out. I thought she knew all of this was happening and did nothing about it. So it wasn't on until later on in life recently that I realized that she did try to do something about it. And that, that was a surprising thing that she did that I was really thankful for. So even though your mother tried to get help, later on after that incident, she did tell you that your speaking out about the abuse as an adult was a way of breaking up the family. Right. So how did you feel about, about that? And, and did you understand why your mother still had that perspective? I think she had that feeling because she was still, I think she was afraid of him, you know, a lot, like most people in the family, they're afraid of him. But I could understand her not wanting to do anything because a lot of people, they stay with these abusers for many reasons, a lot of it financial reasons, just to have someone in the home. You know, they don't know that they can go out on their own. And I can understand that, that it's got to be difficult because a lot of people are not strong. They're not strong enough. You know, they can get stronger, but they have to get out of that situation first. You know, women, men that go into these domestic um, shelters, a lot of times they will keep going to these shelters, I've been told, four or five, six times, you know, until they feel that strength to stay there permanently that it's very difficult especially when there's kids involved did your mother have any skills that would have helped her get a job and be able to support you if you if she did leave your stepfather she did and she was actually working so she did have means of you know means of having money maybe not enough to support the whole family but there I'm sure that there were resources that she could have applied for that could have given her the ability to do so. One of the things that you um, shared in why you didn't disclose to your Aunt Judy for so long, you said you mentioned earlier you waited till you were 28, mm -hmm. is because, quote, you didn't want to bring any ugliness into her home and spoil your special girl time with her. Unquote. Right, right. What would you say to children now who are, you know, having the same thoughts go through their minds? You know, things aren't perfect, and but you should not be being abused either. 
So people will still love you even if bad things are happening to you. And that was what I felt like something bad was happening to me and nobody's going to love me. My Aunt Judy's going to change the amount of love that she's given to me. And knowing now today, that love only increased. So it, it is okay to tell. You may think it's a bad thing, but it's so common and really share that ugliness that I didn't for so many years and get that help that you really, really need. Kathy, advocacy for you has played a big part in your own healing. You were pivotal in helping the state of Massachusetts get its statute of limitations laws changed. Can you briefly describe what the laws were before you worked on them with regard to criminal and civil complaints? Sure. So to change these laws was huge for me. I mean, I I wanted in the worst way to get these laws changed so that something can be done about perpetrators that abuse innocent people. And there's two. There's the criminal, which is registering as a sex offender and doing jail time. And that law used to be that a person had to be up to the age of 31. And on September 21st, 2006, that law time frame was changed, given a survivor until the age of 43 in Massachusetts as it stands today. And the other statute of limitations is civil, which is monetary. They don't have to register as a sex offender. They don't have to do any jail time. And that's the one that I pursued against my stepfather, the civil. And the civil on June 26th, 2014, that particular law was changed, given a survivor until the age of 53 to go forward for a court. It used to be that they only had until the age of 21. So that was a huge increase in time when they can go forward. And when that bill passed, I was exactly the age of 53 years old. Do you actually have statistics as to what the average age of child sexual abuse disclosure is? Isn't it some somewhere in the 50s? It's 34 years old. Oh, is it? Okay, it I, used, I saw. It used I, to be, in, it was 43, but it has gotten better where people are disclosing younger, which is great to hear. But, you know, the average age a, a child is abused is nine years old. You know, it's sad, but I've heard as young as a two-month-old baby. That That's very it's different sad. from what I had read, so that's that's good that the average age is going down for disclosure. Yes. Um, yeah. but, but just to clarify for our listeners, so prior to the 2014 civil statute change, you had up until the age, if you were abused, you had up until the age of 18, you had three years to file a civil suit, meaning up to 21, whereas mm-hmm. now you have, in theory, 35 years. Is that correct? Correct. And then past the age of 53, you cannot make a civil complaint. Right. Um, how t- many people your are... Is, your time is up. Yeah. Is what how many people it. are affected by that that you're aware of? I know of at least three. And it's sad. I mean, how come perpetrators get that privilege of being protected. Survivors don't. You know, your abuse is going to stay with you forever. To what degree is it varies. 
but it's going to stay with you forever. For those three survivors that you know, what what was the um, context for them disclosing after the age of 53? Of what they stated? Yeah. Very upset. No, no, no. Like why? Sorry. What was the, um, why did they wait till after 53? Oh, um, they, they just weren't ready. And it's totally understandable. You know, some people will go to their graves never disclosing, but they just weren't ready. You know, and everybody, there's no certain, you know, light goes on. Okay, I'm ready today. You know, it's just they weren't ready. And then once they were, it's too late. Did they disclose before the age of 53, let's say to a therapist or to family member, but they just weren't ready to take action? Is that what you're right. saying? I see. Correct. And, Correct. And were they aware that there's the statute of limitations when they first disclosed? Because many people, I'm guessing, they're not thinking about accountability at that point. They're just no. dealing you no, know, with healing. Nope. And a lot of people don't know that. They don't realize that there's a time frame of when they can. You know, I, I didn't. My first therapist that I talked to, you know, when I first disclosed, I wish he might have said, well, you know, you only have a certain amount of time, but I had no idea. So people don't know. Some people don't even know that the time has changed. They might have reached out to a lawyer and said, you know, I want to do something about it. And they were told back then, prior to the year 2014, that there's nothing you can do. Well, laws have changed and people need to re-ask that attorney or go and call up and see if they can do something about it now with laws changing. In the criminal statute, there's a 10-year difference in the limit from 53 down to 43 you have. Uh, Why why is there a discrepancy between the criminal and the civil statutes? And and that I I don't have an answer. I don't think there really is an answer. They had to come up with a number. It makes no sense to me. I truly believe that there should be no time frame. You know, sexual abuse is a form of murder. There's no time frame for murder. That's the only crime where there is no time frame. That's right. There are cold cases that last decades and they can reignite them. And, And you are, in fact, a perpetrator is murdering a child's innocence. So there really should be no time frame. Can you tell us why there had been such systemic opposition to extending these statute of limitations? Who are some of the players who are opposed to the extensions? Well, some of the institutions, mm-hmm. some of the school institutions, some of the uh, clergy, your organizations, you know, they do a lot of it, money reasons. I believe you you mentioned in your book the Boy Scouts and the Catholic Church. Yeah. In other words, the liability that they could potentially be held accountable for financially would potentially bankrupt them. Was huge. But they shouldn't think about that. They should think about what's right and what's wrong. And that speaks to also the fact that there is this potential liability also very disturbing. Right. Yeah. Very. And so what role did your advocacy play in your own healing? You describe it as being almost like you were compelled to do it, and you were very successful at it. But now that the statute has been passed in Massachusetts, where you live, what more are you doing in terms of advocacy work? So I've been doing it for about 17 years now, and I speak 
to whoever, whenever I can. And that includes schools, that includes teachers, counselors, correctional institutions. I've gone, spoken with male and female inmates. People think I'm crazy. What are you going to talk to a perpetrator for? But they need to know that I don't forget. A survivor doesn't forget. So when they do get released, that if they do think about reoffending, that maybe it may stop them. The pre-release center, Center for Human Development, your workshops for teachers and parents and really, you know, the list can go on and on and everybody really needs to get educated, including professionals. You know, nobody can be over-educated when it comes to sexual abuse prevention. What role has your husband Gary played in your healing process? He's another one that brings tears to my eyes. Um, So we've been married for 23 years now, and he is my soulmate. If it wasn't for him, the book probably wouldn't have gotten written because we tried about three other people and nobody could do it because of the nature of the story. So Gary and I took that five years and we wrote it. And um, he's, he's a wonderful guy. I mean, he truly understands and gets what I've gone through. And that's what a person needs. They need somebody that's going to understand. You're going to have good days and bad days. And, you know, no, no relationship is perfect. Anybody that says they have the perfect relationship, they're, they're full of crap. Um, but you have to be able to work through it. You know, by me locking the doors, Gary understands. You know, he used to pick on me. What are you locking the door for again? But now he just doesn't even say anything. So he truly gets what I've gone through. And, you know, I've got my ups and downs just like everybody else. And I'm just fortunate to to have him in my life. Kathy, do you have any final words that you want to share to our listeners about your experience and and how they may be able to prevent or respond to child sexual abuse in a way that can help victims and survivors heal? Just, you know, like I mentioned, the biggest thing is to tell. For all the survivors listening, know that you're not alone. It happens way too much than we ever want to talk about but know that, you know, you, you do have people that do want to help you and are here to listen to you and to share your story. And even if it happened once, once is too much. And still tell your story and to talk. And my hope is, Terry, that each and one of your listeners does get a copy of my book. And it's not about the money. It's about sharing my story and letting others know what one survivor went through and what I did to help myself to to go forward. Maybe you can take from it something that's in the story to help yourself, help your neighbor, help a student, but just to help somebody. Well, it's definitely a guide in what not to do. Yeah. (laughs) So from that perspective, I think everyone also should read it um, beyond the fact that there's so many other great Um, anecdotes and and insights that you offer. So thank you, Kathy. Thank you to you and Gary for writing the book. And I wish you both a lifetime of happiness and healing and joy. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, 
a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. <laughs>